soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, this morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. We're going to dance. We're going to dance and have some fun. Welcome to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. Episode 1, Experts Say It's a War We Can't Win. Hello, my name is Jason Dyes, and thank you so much for listening. In 1990, a little bit about me, they say when you start a story, you got to talk about the main character. The main character in this journey is my recollection of the war. I have not done any Google research. I'm going entirely from my memory. I know in August of 1990, I was 22 years old. I had completed a semester of college at San Antonio College and two summer sessions. And I had also completed before that a three-year term of enlistment in the United States Army, the 7th Infantry Division, in a very, very high-profile unit whose area of operation was Central America, which happened to be the last real hot spot at the end of the Cold War. This podcast, however, is about Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I remember in August of 1990 hearing that Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And because I was always keenly aware of news and I was a aspiring history teacher, so I took a great interest in things that were happening. I read the newspaper, I watched the news. I was a little confused because I had, you know, come about thinking Iraq was our ally. We had actually supported Iraq during their eight year war with Iran, and it just seemed kind of weird that Iraq was on the move in the Middle East. But I also remember having that sense of, oh, another problem in the Middle East, what time is lunch, and thinking, oh, our gas prices are going to go up, just the usual things that happened. Being a Generation Xer, I can remember the Iranian hostage crisis, the bombings in Beirut, the bombing of Libya when I was in basic training in March or April of 1986. And so another problem, another another story on the news about a problem in the Middle East didn't register with me. What I didn't know at the time is on August 2nd, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, that single act would change the trajectory of my life. And if you're a Desert Storm veteran, my guess is for a lot of people, that's true. The reason I'm doing the podcast is to commemorate 30 years since Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm, and because Operation Desert Storm has largely been forgotten, and that happens in in wars. You know, your country is over 230 years old. We we don't really talk about the Spanish-American War either, and far more Americans were killed in that conflict than would eventually be killed in Operation Desert Storm. That's just part of history. We can't know about everything. We can't care about every conflict. I've always felt a real personal commonality with the Korean War veterans because that war in between World War II and Vietnam is sometimes forgotten. And, of course, Desert Storm occurring in 1991, 10 years later, is overshadowed by the conflicts that happened after September 11th, uh, OIF 1 and 2, the invasion of Iraq, and the subsequent war uh, after that, OIF 2, of course, the invasion of Afghanistan. I think that was in November of 2001. And so a lot of people, and there's an entire generation that probably has never really heard of Operation Desert Storm when younger people people have found out that I served in the Gulf War, many 
automatically assume it was the 2003 invasion of Iraq. You know, this is going back to 1990 Desert Shield and 1991 Desert Storm. Now, it's important to understand the setting where I was in August of 1990. As I said, I was a 22-year-old college student, U.S. Army veteran. I had just been elected to the president of the San Antonio College Republicans. And so in the coming school year, which in those days started in September, I was going to be responsible for debates and social justice forums and all these kinds of things that we did on campus. And so I was paying close attention to things that were happening in the news. I, I, I said, I don't remember how I heard. I do remember that that song that I played there at the in the setup, Delight, Groove is in the Heart, I loved that song. That song was released in August of 1990, and I would go over to NPR on the FM band and uh, listen to some news and then jump back. In those days, they played Top 40 music, even on AM radio. We'll give the millennials and Gen Z a moment to look up what AM FM radio is. But what is interesting about the setting in August of 1990 is I know where I didn't hear about the invasion of Kuwait. I did not hear it on Facebook. I did not read a tweet about it. I did not see it online. In August of 1990, the way Americans got their news was really not much different than the way Americans got their news when Pearl Harbor was bombed or during the Tet Offensive in 1968. You got a daily newspaper in San Antonio in those days where I lived. There were two, the San Antonio Light and the San Antonio Express. There were three channels that had a 5 o'clock newscast, ABC, CBS, and ABC. Um, there was NPR and PBS. There was CNN, which I that was my go-to news source back when they still did news back in 1990. And the newspaper and magazines would cover stuff, kind of a retrospective look at the month at that it happened. And so I really don't know. I'm sure it was probably CNN where I saw the story. And like I said, I dismissed it. It just wasn't a big deal to me. But I was acutely aware of the narrative that immediately started developing as the news began to cover this invasion of Kuwait and the United Nations issued its usual condemnation, which is all the United Nations ever did in those days, something terrible would happen. And the United Nations would condemn it, and it didn't change anything, but I guess it made the people at the United Nations feel better. Well, I guess what got my attention was as I started watching the news coverage and becoming a little more uh, invested in the story, it was within a week of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait that the first President Bush sent 200,000 soldiers, sailors, and airmen to Saudi Arabia. That really got my attention. As I mentioned, I was already a veteran of the U.S. Army. The 7th Infantry Division had 10,000 soldiers in it, so to send 200,000 was the equivalent of 20 divisions of soldiers. That is a tremendous footprint to put anywhere in the world. And having joined the Cold War Army, you also have to understand in August of 1990, most people agree that the Cold War is over. The, the training to fight the Russians appears like it's not going to happen. And had you asked any Cold War veteran who served in the late 80s, would, and, they, and you had told them you would end up fighting in Saudi Arabia or Iraq, 
they it wouldn't have really made any sense. There really didn't feel like there was any national interest there. We were policing hotspots around the globe, still fighting the communists like we had been doing since the end of World War II. But this long protracted mechanized battle in Western Europe never materialized. In August of 1990, I think it was that year that Mikhail Gorbachev, the president of Russia, gets the Nobel Peace Prize for you know ending the Cold War, which honestly should have gone to Ronald Reagan, not Mikhail Gorbachev. But it was an important development because Russia, um, their ally was absolutely Iraq, and that war would have been very, very different had Russia decided to throw its support behind Iraq. When I heard that those 200,000 soldiers, sailors, and airmen were being sent, and I'm just going to say soldiers. I know Marines don't like being called soldiers, but just for the sake of brevity, uh, when, when I refer to the service men and women as soldiers, I don't mean to disrespect anybody in the Air Force or the Marine Corps or the Navy. Uh, being an Army guy, I everyone's soldiers to me, uh, but that 200,000 troop deployment was like, wow, that is really significant. Now, how I'm doing this podcast is a little interesting. I've not Googled anything. I'm doing all of this from memory. Over the years, I've gone back and looked at things. Oh, 10-year anniversary of Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I'll read a couple articles or whatever. I'm going almost entirely from my memory. So if I make some mistakes on dates and times, I I hope you won't uh, hold that against me too much. I will tell you, I called Two gentlemen that I served with as I got ready to do this, a very dear friend during the war, uh, my battle buddy, who was with with me all the time for the most part, especially in the buildup and the Desert Shield portion of the conflict, Mike Alonzo, who's now a sergeant with the Kirby Police Department, and one of the best soldiers I ever knew, Jerry Resnick, who I'd served with at Fort Ord, California, in the regular Army, and against all odds, he was sent to our reserve unit when we deployed out of San Antonio later in the year, and I was fascinated by how differently they remembered things, and they remembered some things that I had forgotten. I corrected them on some things, and they were like, oh, that's right, Jason. You're right. I do remember that. For instance, I had a memory, a clear memory of leaving on an Air Force uh, jet, an Air Force plane. In reality, we flew over on a commercial uh, jet, and during times of war, the, um, the government can basically militarize uh, personal aircraft, you know, uh, Southwest Airlines planes or United Airlines planes. In fact, I flew home on a United Airlines flight. 747, you can basically take those and commandeer them to move troops into the theater of operation. And so it was very interesting talking to Mike and Jerry how our memories of of single events were very different. And in some cases, oh, Jason, you're wrong. Or I would say, no, Mike, I, I remember that differently. So I'll be talking in the setup about what it was like for me being a college student who was very aware of what was going on. And one of the first things I noticed in the narrative on the news was that every news story mentioned what they thought was this salient fact about the Iraqi army. It was the fourth largest army in the world. It had 400,000 soldiers, and it was battle-tested and battle-hardened after a 10-year war with Iran. And I can't tell you how many times I heard someone say, experts say, it's a war the United States can't win. I would yell at the television. I would uh, get so upset listening to the news. But again, I had no outlet 
to express my opinion on what I thought was an absolute misreading of this situation by experts who had never been in the military. And there were actually some military people who were saying it was a war the United States couldn't win. You have to understand, when I joined the Army in 1986 and got out in 1989, and I'm a reservist now in 1990, Nobody walked up to you when you were in uniform and said, thank you for your service. The United States military was still dealing with the shadow of Vietnam. Most people looked at a guy like me that joined the Army after high school as somebody who wasn't smart enough to go to college. And there was just not the respect that you see now. Now, there was no salute to veterans at the ball games and things like that. Now, the United States Army and the military itself had been shaped by popular culture, Stripes and Private Benjamin. And it was seen as really a, a college funding source. You went to the Army, you got the GI Bill, and in the 20th century, you could go get a college degree, you know, buy a house and live the American dream. Well, I will tell you, by August of 1990, um, I was in a place, I w if anybody asked me, what was the worst year of your life? Up until August 1990, I would say it was probably 1990. My father had been working with computers since the mainframe days in the late 1960s. He went back to college relatively late in life. He did his master's thesis in the mid-80s on something called artificial intelligence. But by 1990, were you to go into my little one-bedroom apartment on the northeast side of San Antonio, you would have found a typewriter sitting on the table. Yes, the old ping typewriter, not even the daisy wheel. Good old-fashioned typewriter is how I did my freshman work in college in 1990. And I had a phone and an answering machine. Uh, my great technology was that I had a coffee maker that you could program to start at 6 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning. You'd put the coffee in the paper filter the night before, fill up the water, and it would start brewing. So you would wake up to the smell of brewing coffee. To me, that was pretty Star Trek. That was pretty Star Wars. But in my own mind, in 1990, I was very disappointed. Uh, where were the supercomputers? Where were the flying cars? Where was all the things that I thought we were going to have by now? And to make matters worse, the the unit that I had been with, the 7th ID, when you're in the Army, especially during the Cold War, imagine being on a football team and all you ever do is practice. You never get to play in the big game. Well, in 1989, March of 1989, I got out of the Army, and then that following December, in December of 1989, a lot of people won't remember this, there was a big fight in Panama called Operation Just Cause, and my unit gets sent to Panama, and I'm working at the lowest rung in the healthcare profession as an orderly in the orthopedics department at Northeast Baptist Hospital, watching my old unit finally get in the big game. Uh, it was it was soul crushing. It was depressing. I was reduced to telling people, hey, that's my old unit, but hey, here I am in my hospital whites, setting up traction and serving meals to people having hip replacements. Fast forward to August of 1990, I didn't even have that job anymore. I had been reduced to working the same exact job that I had had in high school, selling shoes at Endicott Johnson Shoe Store at Windsor Park Mall. And I just didn't feel like my military experience, I'd had a great military experience. The company commanders in my unit, my company commander, uh, 
Captain Townsend at the time, is still in the Army. He's a four-star general, General Stephen Townsend, P.H. Stephen Townsend. You can Google him. He's in charge of the Africa Corps now. Uh, He was my company commander. I was surrounded by really professional soldiers. Um, Dave Grossman, who wrote the famous book on killing, about the psychology of killing in, in the military, he was the Charlie Company commander. I just had great, great professional soldiers around me. And to go from that at the, you know, the 7th Infantry Division, the 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry Alpha Company that I was in was the major leagues, the NFL of the Army. It was at the highest tier of the American military. And I'd gone from that to working as an orderly in Northeast Baptist Hospital. And now, as the Desert Shield kicked off with the deployment of 200,000 troops to Saudi Arabia, here I am working as a shoe salesman wondering, is this going to happen again? Is there going to be a war that I'm going to miss out on? I had already paid my tuition for the coming fall semester, so there was no going back from that. And honestly, if you again, part of the news narrative was there's going to be a diplomatic settlement. America doesn't want to go to war. America is not prepared to go to war with Iraq. And of course, like I said, I'm yelling at the TV, you experts in air quotes have no idea what you're talking about. I remember very clearly a conversation, it must have been after President Bush deployed those 200,000 troops. I went to have a brunch with my family after church at Golden Corral, and there were some people from church there, and you know they knew I was an Army veteran, and people were asking me questions, and they had all bought in to that narrative that there's no way the American military, the all-volunteer force of 18 and 19-year-old kids can go beat this battle-tested army fighting for religion and all these different kinds of things. On the news, they would show the Iraqi military parades and the guys high-stepping with their, you know, white boots on and things like that, and their AK-47s held across their chest, and it all looked very scary. I wasn't having any of it. One of the experiences I had had during my active duty time was I went down to the National Training Center, which is in Fort Irwin. It's where you train to fight in the desert, even though everybody thought the big fight would be in Western Europe against uh, Russia and the Warsaw Pact countries. And I got to see up close, very up close, what the M1 Abrams main battle tank was capable of. When I joined the Army, it was the old-fashioned Jeep you would see on MASH replaced by the Humvee. There was no better, there was no better pictorial example of what the military was like at the end of the 1970s to what it became by the end of the 1980s. Back to that Operation Just Cause in December of 1989, the invasion of Panama, many experts in the military who were right in this particular case had said that was one of the most you know, perfect deployments the military's ever had, and it was. Uh, things worked the way they were supposed to. You know, We went from the Huey to the Black Hawk helicopter, from the steel helmet to the Kevlar helmet, Everything just seemed to be getting better. I knew the American military had turned a very, very significant corner and was, and was so much better than it had been just 10 years before in 1980. I would tell anybody who would listen that if we went to war in the desert with Iraq, it would surprise me if the battle lasted more than a week. And people would tell me I didn't know what I was talking about because experts are saying this is a war we can't win. 
And there was no Fox News, there was no Rush Limbaugh, there was no Sean Hannity to offer an opposing view of that. The media, even in 1990, I always thought was a little slanted to the left and almost seemed to take some joy in pointing out the fact that America had no chance of defeating the fourth largest army on earth. Like I said, what could I do about it? I'm a shoe salesman in Northeast San Antonio and a part-time, full-time community college student at a college you've probably never heard of. I was looking forward to the coming semester, but in my heart, I was hoping somehow, some way, my reserve unit would get called up to serve in, at the time, what was being called Operation Desert Shield. But next episode, I'll talk to you about that reserve unit and why when I looked around at the people in that reserve unit, I didn't think there was any chance they were ever going to deploy this unit to a real battlefield. And I was in fear that I would again have to watch the war from the outside as, as, a, as a spectator, not a participant, and, and be left to say, hey, I used to be in the Army, but I was going to miss out on yet another conflict that by the end of August was starting to engulf all the news and all the diplomatic news that you saw on television at night or on CNN throughout the day. For the meantime, in August of 1990, I was left driving to work to sell shoes, hoping that I would hear that song, Group is in the Heart. Next time, episode two, which will be titled, Are You Going?, is because later in August, President Bush also announced that he had made whatever you have to do as a president. He had authorized the recalling of reservists to active duty in support of Operation Desert Shield. But like I said, I didn't think there was any chance my reserve unit was going anywhere close to a battle. But we'll talk about that in episode two, which is called, Are You Going? Because in the fall of 1990, I must have been asked that question a thousand times. Thank you so much for listening to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Dias, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Just a lovely and delicious.